and what was likely the most anticipated Fed rate decision since the committee started its tightening cycle, Chairman Powell and company delivered a somewhat expected 25 basis point increase in the Fed funds target and signaled that its next meeting may be its last for rate hikes. Yet, you would think this news would be reason to celebrate, but we saw the Dow plummet over 500 points today, signaling all kinds of confusion and making investors concerned. So we're here to help solve that problem and hopefully answer any questions, that, or all the questions that you have. Welcome, everyone, to Buy, Hold, Sell. I am your trader, Todd Schoenberger, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Tobin Smith, out in sunny and hot Scottsdale, Arizona. And we have a very special guest today joining us from Charles Schwab, Chief Investment Strategist and Managing Director, Liz Ann Saunders. Liz Ann, welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell. Oh, thanks, gentlemen. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. Well, Liz Ann, I was- You're classing the whole place up a little bit, Liz Ann, so, you know- <laughs> I almost I said, thanks, guys, but I decided to be a little more formal. <laughs> You know, yeah, you could be as informal as you want with this show. We're, we ad-libbed the whole thing, so this is great. <laughs> so so listen, so listen, you, you obviously, I mean, the big news story of the day, obviously, Fed, uh, the Fed rate decision. And what's your take on the decision and Chairman Powell's remarks afterwards? So my take on, on what they did, I don't think that was terribly surprising. Heading into the meeting, the futures market had an 83% likelihood of 25 basis points. And it's been the Fed's MO not to go against expectations, particularly when they're that um, firm. I think what was surprising, though, is that the decision was unanimous. I, I was expecting maybe to see a dissenter or two in favor of a pause. And I think the if you wrote the headline just from reading the statement, uh, in fact, I started writing my commentary and I had the word sort of dovish hike in there. But then as the press conference went further on, it wasn't that Powell specifically was saying things that would be seen as more hawkish. I just think it it, it took on a little bit less dovish a tone through inferences and the, the nature of questions. And that, I think, contributed to the, the market going down. But, you know, the market's going to do what it does. And, and you know, who knows? Liz, Liz, might... did, you, did you find that um, how he handled the questions on the quote unquote banking crisis or certainly on the other... Did he, you think he covered enough bases there to remove or add fear? Um, I don't think either. I think he appropriately discussed what we, we know at this point, what the Fed knows at this point. I think he was careful not to speculate in either direction, either suggesting, hey, you know, this is likely to get significantly worse from here, nor did he say, you know, it's over, nothing to see here, waters are, are calm. And I think that that was appropriate. He highlighted what's important to keep an eye on, which I think, you know, we've been so attuned to every piece of inflation data, maybe second only to that would be labor market data. Now, I think that the data point that is going to continue to garner probably more attention than anything else is the every Thursday release of how much borrowing has been done in the prior right. week from the discount window and the emergency funding facilities. And it was an eye-popping number last Thursday. Yeah. And he did say, hey, you know, Fed's reserves are in healthy shape. So he, you know, had some calming words, but I do think that that is going to be a sort of the the hot headline, at least in the near term for yeah, obvious I, reasons. I mean, I certainly agree, but where are you on this? And so I, you know, I was saying we're in this like narrative whack-a-mole right? What, three weeks ago was one thing. The other thing was another thing. You mentioned a couple other you know, issues. Now, where, where are you on this idea that, well, geez, if we step in with $300 billion here and $300 billion there, that that's effectively quantitative easing? That is not QE. That is All not right, QE. Good. It is not. Um, QE is a proactive tool that the Fed uses to juice growth. This 
was a function of banks under stress needing to come to the discount window. And some say, well, it's just semantics. The Fed's balance sheet is expanding again, therefore it's QE. But quantitative easing is a proactive tool. And that's not what was done here. Yes, there's been a take up at the discount window. And by the way, 300 of that 300 billion, about half of it was the funding for depositors of SVB and Signature. Um, now, mm-hmm. the lending piece was also the sharpest increase in a one week uh, time frame. But I think that's going to be a tell that is quantitative in nature in terms of ongoing stress in the banking system, aside from what we either glean from the rumor mill or social media. Uh, a lot of it is misinformation, unfortunately, but that's the world in which we live. Everything is happening at Twitter speed and yeah. with mobile banking, things move really, really quickly. You and know, that I didn't is get this what gray makes hair from, uh, you know, coloring it. I, you know, it sort of grew out after a while. I started. Well, in the- I don't have gray hair because of coloring it. So. <laughs> yeah, well, it, you know, listen, if, if you're a white Anglo-Saxon dude, you know, you're going to have gray hair, right? But to be looked distinguished. Thank you very much. Um, I see. I stopped myself from cussing right there. Uh, but the the issue, you know, that so got me is that you know, yeah, quantitative easing actually is a process. You push the button at the New York Fed. You you know, you buy a bunch of bonds and put cash in the system. You just made out of the out of the you know air. That that's not where we're at. Right. But uh, you have been about a rolling recession. And I think you've been dead right as I've been following you the last 12 months. How far are we rolling there, young lady? Well, so some of the the pockets of of the economy that absolutely were in recession, like housing and a lot of housing related, there are some tentative signs that we might be seeing stabilization. So I'm not suggesting that we're sort of through the housing recession, but the fact that it's been ongoing for quite a few quarters, maybe we're seeing some stabilization. But other areas like a lot of internet-driven consumer goods areas, a lot of the the beneficiaries of the stay-at-home environment, absolutely in recession territory. We've just had the offsetting strength on the services side. Now I think the question going forward is the what I think is the inevitable move from what has been an asset crunch to a credit crunch, I think that will ultimately hit the services sector um, because they tend to be a lot of smaller companies that have to fund operations or payrolls, et cetera, through the traditional banking system. So I, I think that it may not be a shoe that, that, drops and implodes. But I think the likelihood of this eventually becoming a full formal recession declared by the NBER, it's hard to think that what's happened in the last two weeks doesn't point the needle more in that direction. Uh, you know, it, Powell it, said it, pathway to soft landing. Yeah, halfway, right. I, I yeah, I'm not so sure. What did you that. think about no landing, though? That's the one that got me. That, I, that I, made no sense. That, that made, made no, no sense. sense whatsoever. I, I guess right. we're old school. No sense. So listen, so you 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 published a piece for Schwab clients this week that talked about some of the key events that have taken place over the past uh, what decade and a half, or actually going even further back, and how it has led the the economy to a recession. There was only one exception that was in 2009 with Colonial Bank, but here it's clear that as day, if you just look at the evidence, we are headed to a recession. Yet when you speak to other economists. They're actually saying there really isn't a slowdown. There isn't one. The only pocket of this country that is showing any type of a slowdown is San Francisco. So what do you say with that? I mean, if the economy is still growing in these pockets, are we definitely going to be hitting that recession? Well, again, I think uh, to me, I think the pockets of weakness should be looked at more around pockets of the economy, not 
one state versus mm-hmm. another. And and housing and housing related, the goods side of the economy, particularly consumer goods, they're already in recession. There's there's no denying that. All you have to do is pull up charts and see. We've just, again, had the offset of stronger services. And part of the reason why the labor market has stayed relatively healthy is that services is a much larger employer in the United States than the goods side of the economy. But what's really interesting and very unique about this cycle in terms of the labor market is the, the layoffs that are are coming sort of fast and furiously these days um, are top-down layoffs. Yeah. They're, they're up the, the income wage managerial spectrum, and it's usually the opposite. And mm. there are so many things that make this cycle unique because yeah. of the vagaries of the pandemic. That's one in particular. Now, why that hasn't translated into a big increase in unemployment claims in part is because in some cases there just isn't the financial need to rush to the unemployment office and or there's a lot of severance payments associated with these layoffs, which means that they're not qualified to file for unemployment. But I think the labor market is going to weaken. It's just lagged because of that services bias to employment. Yeah, I, you know, we just, I just did a, a piece on uh, looking at the average salary and benefit of the, we'll call it 250,000 laid off in the tech world. And if you multiply it against that, the $36,000 average annual for a blue collar, that this is somewhat like like we, you know, it's equivalent uh, to laying off uh, two and a half million people from the from the market. Um, I, I don't think I haven't seen that data come out. And the other thing, I'm you know, I think you're on the same side. I am. Uh, I can't stand when people are looking at inflation and not looking at the leading indicators. We have the leading indicators down 11 months in a row. You never hear about that. Um, and no lagging, one that. I mean, inflation is inherently lagging. Yeah. And the leading indicators right. are flashing recession. <laughs> Unquestionably. So, (laughs) and and by the way, you know, the Fed, Powell, they get it. They understand the concept of variable lags. They understand that inflation is a lagging indicator. They understand that inherently a credit crunch and a recession, assuming we get both, are inherently disinflationary. Um, But I think what what they're doing here is not so much ignoring all of those things that that I just mentioned, and they're not looking at the current inflation environment as akin to the 1970s. The drivers are are different. But they want to avoid the fits and starts that characterize the 1970s. They want to avoid declaring victory too soon, easing policy, even for good reasons, too soon, such that inflation sort of rears its ugly head again. And that was really the problem in the 70s. It yeah. was the fits and starts that ultimately meant Paul Volcker had to come in and pull a Paul Volcker, as we now uh, call it. And I think that <laughs> is the page of the playbook that they're most focused on. Yeah, I, I right. have known Jerome for a long time. And uh, most people don't know that he was basically a history major. Um, and I guarantee you his fervent desire is not to be in the book to be the next Arthur Burns, right? Right. Um, Absolutely. But but Lizanne, right. the other one thing gets me. And this is me being prejudiced again on thirty year old money managers. They've never bought bonds in their life. They they don't they don't understand. I got the HYG. I mean, we're about seventy five percent in cash flow. Our wealth management. Um, we love the yield bonds. We we're the biggest buyer of that Schwab. You know, four uh, percent. Uh, money market fund. And 
Uh, and then we have like 10% in some very uh, select, uh, you know, micro sectors like my favorite, you know, shipping. We've done incredibly well with shipping because, you know, when they cut off the uh, products, now you got to ship twice as far. And and they now are the new owners. The old guys were the Greek guys. And they, every time they got money in their pocket, they just went and bought more boats. And this time it's the young kids run the companies and they're saying, hey, wait a minute, how about a dividend or two? So there are ways to make some money. But I, I guess we shouldn't be surprised that the portfolio managers don't look at Bonds at all, you know, just I'm well, gonna... not, not just portfolio managers. How about the fairly significant cohort of what in the early stages of the pandemic I was calling the newly minted day traders? Uh, yeah. Even less of of a history, and I think mm-hmm. even for for folks that might have been in markets, call it for the last twenty five years, I think there's still this idea out there that. Ultimately, when we get through this pandemic, the banking crisis, that we're heading back to a pre-pandemic kind of environment. And I just think that's decidedly not the case. The so-called great moderation era of the 20 plus years leading into the pandemic was an era defined by and characterized by cheap access to goods, cheap access to labor, cheap access to energy. It was driven by China coming into the world trading order. And pretty much every one of those ships has sailed. And I think what we're transitioning into is back to what I've been calling the temperamental era of really the mid to late 60s to the mid to late 90s, Interesting. where you had not high inflation constantly, but you had more inflation volatility, you had more geopolitical volatility, you had shorter cycles, meaning more recessions. The only good news on the other side of that is the growth phases were much stronger. You know, for all the cheering of the expansion that ended with the pandemic being the longest in U.S. history, which it was, Mm-hmm. It was also by far, by far the weakest of any expansion, regardless of length. So yeah, we can cheer length, but wouldn't you rather have some strength? So I think that's the era we're transitioning to mm-hmm. of just greater geopolitical, greater inflation, volatility, shorter uh, cycles. But that that's an environment not without opportunity. It's just a different environment yeah. than the well, era of the great moderation. What do you take on this one? I, you know, I I was very bad at algebra. I'm excellent at calculus. I don't understand why. It's just my right <laughs> brain, right? And uh, I started putting all together the the people who are out of the job market, because my thesis here for the last year has been somewhat near yours, but it, that, you you know, the Fed will never tell you we have to kill jobs. They'll never say that. Right. But if you just did the math, you can't have 11 million job openings with 5.1 million people available um, and not have to kill some jobs or at least get, you know, those jobs taken off the market to come back to some type of balance. But we're down a million and a half people just long COVID or, you know, COVID took them out. We're at, we have the largest, the highest unemployment rate for 19 to 29 year olds or 18 that we've ever seen. You know, everybody's down playing Call of Duty in their, you know, their the basement of their parents. Uh, we have more women out of the marketplace. We have, you know, the 15,000 boomers and turning 65 and 70 up until 2030. And then we had the number that really blew me away is that there was 1.6 million people who um, got, you know, started their social security, but they started at age 62. And when you put that math together, we still have this yawning gap um, and uh, like, you know, 5 million-ish. And they're not, you know, we can't print them. We can't, you know, we can't use the uh, 3D printing. We were down 1.4 million in immigrants. How are we going to solve that problem? Because well, service so wages I think can't the, come down, right? 
Well, service wages are coming down pretty sharply. And that's a new, that's a pretty new story that I think should get more attention than it is getting. I also, I think the reality of the gap between openings and unemployed doesn't quite tell the full story. Number one, the response rate for the JOLT survey is way, way down. So you just have to question whether there's enough of a sample size. In addition, even the purveyors of the data say it probably overstates actual job Yeah, that big asterisk on the bottom of the report. Yeah, because of the nature of how openings (laughs) are posted. In addition, it's a little bit um, disingenuous to do the comparison with the number of people unemployed. Because that's not the entire pool of labor available for some of these jobs. Mm -hmm. That pool includes people working who might want to switch jobs. So there's a portion of the employed that are in that pool of available labor, especially given what until recently was a record high quits rate. So I'm not saying the labor market isn't still somewhat tight. I just think the real story is a bit more nuanced. And we have started to see the labor force participation rate pick up. And that is naturally a function of strains starting to be felt in the economy. And I think if and when we see more deterioration in the headline labor market numbers, I would expect that participation rate to continue to go up. Uh, Todd, what Liz is really saying is is I'm full of crap. And and she just uh, showed me exactly why. No, no, no. It's just the gap is less (laughs) wide than is commonly believed. Yeah. And, and so, so, to, I'll tell you that after after the show, Toby. So don't worry about it. But listen, let's leave it right there, though, guys, because um, we want to take a break at this point and I want to get you back. I want to, Ms. Ann's going to stay with us for the next block. We really want to break down a little bit more about about Chairman, uh, Chairman Powell's comments and what the market overall market reaction may be for the next few days, obviously, going into the remaining of the quarter. So we'll be right back on Buy, Hold, Sell. Please stay with us. Buy, hold, sell, brought to you by Crosscheck Management. How much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transform, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcast, and now available on YouTube. Travis Carmichael, the seemingly social financier who successfully left behind a blue-collar Baltimore upbringing by transforming himself into an elite hedge fund manager branded with a sterling reputation for creating enviable profit machines for many of the world's most powerful people. His success proved costly as he became incessantly vulnerable after a series of careless mistakes and poor decisions originated from his love affair with the brilliant and stunningly beautiful Russian operator Naomi Knight. Through a roller coaster journey, journey of greed, mystery, sex, and murder, Travis and Naomi's metamorphosis from scorching Wall Street couple to unrecoverable bliss is forever locked for posterity as one of New York City's most interesting tales. 
Coming to you from former Wall Street hedge fund executive and frequent contributor on CNBC, Fox News, Bloomberg, and CNN, I, Todd Schoenberger, feature a historical novel inspired by true events, including but not limited to those who possess impenetrable dreams of Manhattan wealth and the consuming lifestyle it perpetuates. Please pick up your copy of No Lie Lives Forever, available on Amazon and finer bookstores near you. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read. Welcome back to Buy, Hold, Sell. Big losses across the board in the markets, down 1.6% for the NASDAQ, S&P, and Dow, following the Fed rate decision today and Chairman Powell's comments. We have a very special guest who's still with us, Liz Ann Saunders. She's Chief Investment Strategist and Managing Director at Charles Schwab. And Liz Ann, we were just talking in the last block about weakness in the economy, particularly coast-to-coast, nationwide, but pockets price more weaker than other areas. But what about real estate, particularly commercial real estate? What's your opinion? So I think that there is a a broader story here than just what's going on in the banking situation. And it's part of it is that there's been so much focus on the B part of SVB and not enough on the SV. And I don't mean specifically Silicon Valley as a geographic region, but what that represents in terms of startups and the VC world. And it's really, Mm -hmm. we're at the end of the easy money era. And, you know, I guess it was Buffett who said the liquidity tide goes out, you see you swimming naked. And it's not just a few smaller regional banks. It's broader than just the financial system because there was such capital misallocation and lack of price discovery and support for zombie companies. So this is a broader story, but specific to the commercial real estate story, very much tied to the pandemic. But what Mm. we now know is, is this whole notion of hybrid working is here to stay. It'll still ebb and flow depending on the company mm-hmm. in the industry. But it, I think a lot of companies haven't yet gotten to the point saying, okay, we need to rationalize the footprint here. And for a lot of smaller companies that have expanded or funded themselves, um, you know, built buildings, they've, they've done it via the traditional banking system, the small and regional banks that haven't outsized exposure to commercial real, uh, real estate. And I think there are going to be adjustments and dislocations that happen. That doesn't mean the overall industry is dead. I think there's going to be a rethinking of what we do with a lot of the office space, especially in large urban areas. There's still a, a need for more residential space. I think there could be some interesting things that ultimately come about, but I think there's there's probably uh, some, a little bit of carnage left in front of us. And I would I would tie that into potential problems with municipalities too, especially areas that are tied to startups and the tech world because of the layoffs happening uh, now and tax revenues going down and the need to kind of right size, which is part of what we're seeing with the layoffs so concentrated in the in the technology area. And there there are ripple effects here that have yet to be fully felt. 
Well, no question. I uh, I was just in Austin recently, and uh, OMG. I mean, you know, the house that, uh, <laughs> hey, Franklin Barbecue, you know, you used to go for nine bucks and get, uh, you know, some ribs and a <laughs> fries, and now it's $29 for the same thing. And, you know, you used to be able to pay somebody to go wait in line for you, and now they, they <laughs> ixnade that. Yeah, you know, but listen, overall, um, you know, people still need to invest money. People still need to invest for their, their future, for their kids' educations, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, can you give us sort of a, a, a strategic and or a tactical approach to sort of get through this next nine to 12 months? Yeah, so I think, you know, the strategic approach and and what your plan should look like, how to allocate among, you know, riskier assets down to safer assets, that's, that's a function of who you are as an investor. Yeah. I, I always say in my head, shame on anybody who's asked a question about, you know, what are you telling investors? And they'll answer with percentage numbers. Well, you know, we have $7 trillion of client assets. Uh, There's no cookie cutter asset allocation that makes sense. So step one is just figuring out where you sit on the risk tolerance spectrum and time horizon, need for income, et cetera. More tactically, I think this is an environment that is not without opportunities. Oftentimes when you're in sort of the compression part of an economic cycle, whether we're calling it a rolling recession or an actual recession, you tend to see correlations come down. What we have seen until very recently, and until sort of the midst of this banking crisis, we were seeing active management. Last year, active managers had their best year since 2005. And that's in part because there's the return of the risk-free rate. which provides opportunities on the fixed income side. It also means that there's price discovery again, and we're reconnecting, not every day, not every week, but we're reconnecting fundamentals and prices. And we have been really emphasizing for stock picking oriented investors is a factor-based approach. Don't Mm. try to pick a broad sector, but understand that it's the factors AKA characteristics that are going to define leadership or not, and apply that type of analysis across the spectrum of sectors. And the way to think about the factors that make sense is think about what's sort of lacking, what's dear from a macro perspective. One perfect example of that right now is interest coverage. You better be able to cover your, cover your interest costs. That's a common factor you can screen for. That ties into yeah. things like strength of balance mm. sheet, right. strong, um, you know, healthy balance sheet with strong cash and lower debt. It's sort of, to use the word duration, which is often applied on the fixed income side, you can think of duration on the equity side too. You want to be in shorter duration companies. What that means is if you think about your typical startup, there's the, the, the cash flows and earnings are way into the future, long duration away. You want short duration companies that are self-funding, that have that cash flow, that can not only fund their day-to-day operations, they mm-hmm. don't have to go to the capital markets or right. the traditional banking system. We're in a declining earnings revision environment as forward earnings get notched down. You want to look for companies that are bucking that trend. So positive earnings revisions, positive earnings surprise. It, it sounds really obvious, but I think it's we're really pounding the table on taking that factor-based approach as opposed to the kind of monolithic decision-making right. That at times has been appropriate when passive was all the rage and all you had to do was be in the big five stocks and in the S&P and you did well. I just think those days are gone, even in spite of this kind of move to the safety of larger cap um, that has occurred during this two weeks of, of banking woes. Yeah, it was. I mean, it, sometimes, you know, as you know, over the years, sometimes something makes no logical sense whatsoever. But it made very logical sense to have somebody say, well, gee, Apple has $230 billion in cash coming in every month or, you know, or Google 
uh, or Microsoft, et cetera, that has no need for cash. Matter of fact, um, and and they they were the safety place in the storm. It wasn't Fang as much it was Dang. You know, help me uh, find a place I can ride this out. So that I and mean, it's that also why the, the Russell two thousand has just right. gotten hammered. It hammered, yeah. And I don't know right. what the percentage is right now, but I know last year at one point you hit a record high. I think it was about forty three percent of the Russell two thousand were zombie companies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think what you're right. What's interesting is not so much that and the indexes have been relatively calm in light of everything that's been happening in the last two weeks. That's true. But if you look under the surface at these leadership shifts, I think the narrative that that's telling is consistent with what's going on yeah. from a more macro perspective. It yeah, makes I mean, sense. The the YOLO, FOMO, you know, JOMO, all that shizzle, they became the marginal buyer, right? <laughs> the, the price insensitive buyer. And of course, you know, with X amount of shares and and 5 million people buying all at the same time. We worked through that. We've gone yeah, through yeah. that. The, the get rich quick schemes, yeah. um, if they're not dead, they should be, because that's not investing. That's just gambling. Right. And, and But right. I, you know what I'm intrigued in is that there's also small sectors that meet exactly the, the thing you're talking about. High cash flow, paid down debt 100%. You know, a lot of these companies completely <clears throat> gone upside down. And that factor, I, one of the factors we use is, is uh, you know, debt, three quarters, two quarters, et cetera, to see where they're going. The ones who are paying down debt, they're healthy. Uh, yep. Their margins are high. And again, yeah. I don't counting the ship. I'm not counting the shippers here. It's just that when you can buy a product shipper, you know, a diesel shipper that now has to go twice as far and uh, is, is is charging 400% higher rates. And instead yeah. of buying more boats, there's no boats to be had right. because every boat builder in the world is making LNG boats and there's no room for anything else. Those niches have been fun. And, uh, you know, people are actually discovering this. I just got a dividend. I mean, you yeah. know, they, there's a whole net, net, people that never got dividend. And by uh, the way, but, dividends matter a lot, but it's not so much just the height of the yield. Be really careful about don't screen for dividend yield, rank them in descending order, and then just buy the yeah, highest, buy the highest yield. yield. Yeah. You you want to make sure that it's a dividend grower that it can maintain that dividend. Sometimes an outsized yield is an underlying sign sure. of fundamental weakness in the company. So sure. dividend growers more than dividend yield uh, as wow, a that, you know comp number. You know that it, is it, it great. Brilliant advice. Yeah, brings me to this one. So finally, the dollar started to come down, and which which when that happens, we buy silver, yeah. we buy gold, we buy gold miners. Where are you on the? On the dollar coming down, is this just a blip down and back up or what? I don't know. Uh, you know, it depends on interest rate differentials with what the Fed ultimately does. And I'm not sure they have any greater idea in the near term. And then in turn, what, you know, European Central Bank and Bank of England do. There is outsized certainty with regard to not just yeah. individual bank policy, but how they interact with each other. And we've mm-hmm. also had dislocations in terms of what historically has been a pretty common inverse relationship between the dollar and things like energy prices. Yeah. And that has had yeah. the shorter term periods of breaking down. So I think there it's tougher to make a definitive call. You know, on the gold, I'm not a, I'm not a gold analyst. Um, I don't I don't make buy or sell recommendations, but I think, you know, the 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 move back into gold may be less about the inflation backdrop and more about geopolitical instability. It's yeah. been it's been a more consistent hedge relative to geopolitical instability than it has relative to uh, inflation. And I think that's been one of the drivers into uh, gold if we think about macro reasons. 
You know, it just makes me, think, yeah. makes me think of the gold bugs, Todd. You weren't even born either. Uh, in the late <laughs> 70s, uh, financial publishing started really, uh, or you know, yeah. newsletters, for lack of a better word. Charles Schwab got going, and then the gold bugs got going. Um, and uh, everybody was a monetarist. Everybody, it, and those guys now, I think, are not no longer breathing for the most part, because they were about 70 in the 70s. <laughs> yeah. But it, yeah. there's no new generation of gold bugs. Well, uh, you know, the yeah. maybe gold bugs, bugs are now Bitcoin but... bugs, right? That's right. right. I mean, those <laughs> right. Are... Yeah. There you I won't go. Get you started on that because I let's you know, not I, go there. Yeah. That's I don't a, want yeah, to we have the emails that I get or the texts that I get being anti-Bitcoin. What what terrific advice and knowledge, Lizanne. I gotta thank, thank you. you so thank much you. for joining us today. Okay. So this was this was wonderful. So on behalf of Lizanne Saunders and Tobin Smith, I'd like to thank everyone for joining us today on Buy Hold Sell. We'll catch you next time. Take care. Cheers. Buy, hold, sell, brought to you by Crosscheck Management. On any given day in Washington, policy proposals are created, debated, and decimated by tens of thousands of people and organizations working behind the scenes. On 80 Proof Politics, a guest and I will visit a D.C. watering hole and distill the art of advocacy by pulling back the curtain a bit and taking a look at how they play their part in the sausage factory we call our federal government. So if you're at all interested in how the sausage is made, pull up a chair, grab a drink, and join us. After all, what goes better with sausage than a tall, cold one?